Our Father, we thank you for the beauty of this day here. Um, we know that uh, the Andersons are suffering under heat, but um, uh, we are grateful for all the varieties of experience that we have living in the world you've made and the wonderful ways in which you help us both to enjoy and to endure. And we pray tonight as our study is drawing to a close that uh, we will be attentive to the good things that we can learn here and be better fitted to be faithful servants of our Savior in this day. And we do pray especially for the General Assembly upcoming. Uh, we thank you for uh, this report as it will be delivered to the Assembly and now uh, that it's going to be considered for commendation. And we pray that uh, that will be fruitful for the life of our denomination. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, we have uh, to finish um, the last section of last week's consideration. You remember we were looking at um, uh, challenges to Christians today in the face of the narrative of sexuality that many anti-Christian views are based in. Uh, that narrative was particularly interesting and important for us to understand and then they were responding to that narrative. Things are going to be challenges for us. Uh, we were in the middle of um, these uh, discussion of sexual revolutions, uh, what they thought was the first sexual revolution, that is the Christian one in ancient Rome, and then the second sexual revolution, that is the modern one, and to look at the contrast between them. That's what we're going to finish. And... Then we'll press on to the last part of this section on apologetic approaches. And it's it's going to be on the need to ground um, our understanding of Christian sexual ethics in our theology more generally. And then they're going to offer an apologetic approach for speaking to people about these things. And uh, we have a good bit to cover, um, but I hope we'll make it. If not, we'll have to carry some over to next week. Next week will be a little lighter in any case because it's just the concluding section. So we're at page 39, um, what they call the second modern sexual revolution. And they start with the question, how does the Christian sexual revolution relate to this second modern revolution? And it, uh, uh, excuse me here, I'm getting interrupted. Um, it, uh, they want us to recognize from the outset that um, the values that are humane, that belong to our culture, including uh, the idea of uh, consent, consent as a crucial element of, of a sexual relationship that was so emphasized uh, in the mo moderns, and including the notion of um, uh, the goodness of the body uh, and the goodness of sex itself. Uh, these are all, they argue, um, the uh, rooted in Christianity and the Christian influence on our culture. But they're, though they're rooted there, they now have been disconnected uh, from uh, the, the, that Christian basis. And um, the uh, so um, uh, they quote uh, Harper, the social assumptions of pre-Christian sexual morality, such as casual exploitation of bodies of powerless uh, persons, uh, they seem incomprehensible to us today precisely because the Christian revolution so completely swept away the old order. And here Harper's referring to a growing body of scholarship demonstrating uh, that uh, the modern secular person believing in equal right, rights and dignity of every person is really borrowing that belief about human nature that was originally developed from the Bible and grew up in Christian societies. They have a very important footnote there, 69, 
directing you to some uh, wonderful literature on this subject. The first, uh, uh, Larry Seidentop, Inventing the Individual, the Origins of Western Liberalism. I have a copy of that book here that perhaps I can... Oh, of course, you won't be able to read it, the lawyers, but uh, that's what it looks like. It's a, a pretty heavy tome. It's a remarkable volume. Now, here I need to just uh, have a footnote that when we talk about the origins of modern liberalism, here the term is being used in the sense of a political philosophy, not in the sense of contemporary politics as kind of equivalent to um, progressivism. Uh, liberalism is a complex of ideas um, that uh, uh, grew up in the Enlightenment period, a respect for human or natural rights, uh, that the scope and power of public authority ought to be limited, uh, that the state should be neutral with respect to uh, um, uh, religion, um, and uh, evolving constitutional traditions about private property and individual rights. and this, they're, they're showing, grew up out of Christian teachings about human dignity. But that's what we're talking about when we talk about inventing the individual. Uh, another book mentioned here, uh, no, not mentioned here, but I want to bring up, is uh, along the same lines but a broader stroke, uh, scope, and that's by uh, uh, Rodney Stark, and it's called The Victory of Reason, how Christianity led to freedom, capitalism, and Western success. Um, uh, again, hefty volume. Uh, these are not Christian books. Uh, these are all uh, hefty a- academic publishers. Um, the last one, Random House. The first one, Side and Tops, is Harvard University Press. They also mentioned Top- Tom Holland, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Um, and a host of others that are of importance. So there's some great literature there if you want to look further. And as I say, it's all um, peer-reviewed, top-quality academic publishers that are putting it out. This isn't some uh, private Christian point of view. Um, the, uh, The second... Yes, please. Austin? Oh, I think someone else was trying to get a question in. Oh. But I also have one. <laughs> <laughs> was someone else okay. wa- wanting to get a question? Just asking me what page we were on. So take Austin's question. Try it on. <laughs> okay. We're, we're uh, on the last part of last week's um, study on page 39. At, um All right, Austin. I sometimes have to remind myself that Jesus wasn't a liberal, but is it okay to say that his teachings and his kingdom ushered in an environment that helped form liberalism? Or how would you kind of? Yes, I think that's I think that's aptly put, Austin. Um, Especially uh, as the teaching of Jesus and uh, the apostles, was grasped by the Reformation uh, and the uh, recapture of the gospel uh, in its root form uh, allowed for a development pure uh, uh, of its intrinsic logic with respect to men and women in society than was able to happen when things went wrong so early in the post-apostolic period. Does that make sense? Yeah. But yeah, it can... I guess my... Sometimes I fear those we can be anachronistic and... But I I don't hear as much with liberal. You might hear people say that Jesus was a socialist or Jesus was this, but none of these existed back then. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I just want to be careful when... Yes. ...talking about those things. Yes, good point. All right, second, they want us to realize um, that the modern 
sexual revolution is retrograde. Um, it, it, it's moving back toward the abuses of Rome in a host of ways. Um, that because modern culture has broken the link between sexuality uh, and reattached it uh, between sexuality and God and reattached it to the social order, it has uh, led to a new corruption. Um, um, Sex becomes a matter of what I can get and what I need rather than a matter of uh, of Um, self-giving. Sexual culture... Uh, becomes depersonalized and objectifying. Um, the uh, in a very nice point, uh, they noticed that in ancient Rome there was usually one party, the party with power, who used the other party as an object to satisfy his physical needs. But today, uh, both parties are using one another, treating uh, one another as objects to meet needs to be related to only as long as those needs are being met. A very nice point and a, a, a profoundly sad uh, set of circumstances. Um, so uh, modern culture trying to retain some parts of the Christian sexual ethic, uh, but not others, has created a profound con- contradiction. And um, the uh, um, it's e- even... Uh, with some of the parts they're holding on to. So, for example, they note that consent as an idea um, fits more profoundly with the notion of covenant that it's related to in the Christian scheme as opposed to hookups. Um, The uh, consent with respect to covenant is a lasting, permanent relationship. With respect to hookups, it's uh, for an hour or two. Um, and in, in fact, because of that, it introduces many complexities and tension. How long does consent last uh, in, in the modern circumstances? If men and women are together one time, uh, is there consent for the next time or no? Or it has to be renegotiated? Um, they, uh, on page 40, the authors nicely note that... Um, um, early Christians faced all the slanderous sayings that we do, that our sexual ethic is stifling, killjoy, negative, repressive, and so on. Um, but they also know knew that in the short run, sexual self-control is hard, but in the long run, it is way more fulfilling and less dehumanizing than what has grown up uh, with respect to the modern sexual revolution. Um, <clears throat> all right, so then on to the third challenge, um, rooting the church's teaching about sexuality in its uh, theology rather than simply declaring its ethic. The authors note it's simple to put in a sentence, even a phrase, what the sexual ethic is, no sex outside of marriage uh, between one man and one woman. But uh, people ask why. Why is this wrong as opposed to just saying what is wrong? And theology of the Bible has a profound answer. It's because sex is part of what it means for us to be in the image of God. And um, because of that, it has to reflect God and in particular um, his self-giving love. Um, it's not uh, about enhancing power, but rather mutually giving up power to one another in love. Um, So uh, they want to explore this a little bit. Um, um, And they talk about the um, biblical doctrine of creation and redemption that's crucial to understand in this way. and you can see this particularly in 1 Corinthians 6:17, where Paul has the simple statement, flee from sexual immorality. But um, he goes on from that. He doesn't merely say it's wrong because I, as an apostle, say it's wrong. Uh, but he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? 
here he's bringing in the prohibition in relationship to uh, uh, our union with Christ and all that's been accomplished by God in redemptive history. So, uh, what is sex for is the way that chapter ends, and they say, uh, trying to spell this out, is what is ahead of us um, in the next and last section of the book. So let me pause there for a second and see if there are any questions on uh, that critique of the second sexual revolution and the complicated place it puts us in to have the holdover from many Christian ideas and yet the rejection of others that puts the whole thing in internal tension with one another. All right. Yet. I was going to say, um, the way I saw it in college was that it was almost like a cliff, and the culture encouraged you to get as close as you could to the edge. Mm. And the edge is consent. And people fall off the edge, and they're they're doomed. But it, it's such a precarious position. It made me feel bad for the people that adhered to this. Mm, that's a great image, uh, Austin. And uh, I don't doubt that that's true. Um, and it, it, it's entirely correct that um, here folk feel like they've been liberated to really enjoy uh, themselves and other people and what it turns out to be is a, prof- a profound bondage and a, a loss. And that's even going to be made more plain in the material that's ahead of us. All right, so we're on page 40. We are continuing in the general scheme of apologetic approaches for speaking to the world, but now we're going to look at grounding uh, the Christian sex ethic in biblical theology and then an apologetic strategy for addressing the world. So the grounding of the purposes of sex Uh, And they have um, three points they want to make here. Um, And they want to have union with Christ uh, be the linchpin for each of them. Here I have a little uh, dissent, and I'll mention it. I think union with Christ is perfectly uh, proper for the first point they're going to make, especially out of the Ephesians passage. But it seems to me that a little bit they're trying to shoehorn it in to make it all about union with Christ. But rather the items B and C, as we'll see, I think are more properly rooted in uh, our creation in the image of God and the pre-fallen order that God established and uh, is uh, as much important for us to refer to as being bring it into our contemporary circumstances as uh, the redemption that we have now in Christ, um, which we've been arguing all along. The Christian sexual ethic, in terms of its rootedness, looks back to God's purposes in pre-fall creation and looks forward to God's purposes in redemption in order to uh, be rightly grounded in the truth. So let's take a look at that. The first point, then, the one that I do think is very well taken, uh, union with, as union with Christ is a relationship of exclusive covenantal self-giving love, so sexual intimacy is only to be experienced within the covenant of marriage. Um, and, and they point out that uh, our, our very understanding of our relationship with God uh, and intimacy with respect to him is because we've entered into covenant, he with us and making a place for us. Um, and they say on the, contra- the contrast is that modern culture turns all sexual relationships, this is on the bottom of 40, and this is an important observation, Modern culture turns all sexual relationships into consumerist, transactional uh, relationships. And on 141, a devastating critique follows by comparing the consumerist uh, with the uh, covenantal. Uh, The consumerist is about uh, self-fulfillment. There's a mutuality there, but the key thing is 
the individual's needs are essential. And those needs are more important on this view than the relationship itself. The relationship being only provisional and easily ended. Whereas on the covenantal view, the uh, what's important is self-giving, uh, discovering and trying to meet the needs of the other and to put the good of the relationship before my own good. Uh, and so they observe that spouses give up their independence on the Christian view and uh, in place of that have interdependence. And they give themselves entirely to each other, emotionally, physically, legally, economically. Um, whereas uh, the modern view splits these things up. Uh, sexual partners give their bodies, uh, but not the rest of themselves. Um, uh, so it elevates sex to a mere consumer good, they argue. Whereas uh, on the covenantal view, it is the way to the deepest communion uh, between, two, between two human beings. Um, and uh, so it's uh, a wonderful contrast in that first section that they make. And uh, clearly, um, the, uh, this is rooted in um, the fact that the scripture uh, refers in Paul's writings to uh, the mystery of Christ and the church being found in the love of a husband and wife. Um, but let's look at that as, as they develop it. Now we're on to point B on 41. This is the second point. They want to say that uh, union with Christ is a relationship between different, uh, deeply different beings, God and humanity. And so sexual intimacy is to be only experienced in a union across the deep difference of gender. Now, here, um, I, I think parts of B here, the argument is, is pretty speculative, and I'm not sure it's sound. Um, uh, and uh, part C says a lot of things that are true, but I, I, I'm not entirely confident that it's rooted in the image of Christ. So I, in union with Christ. So let's look at it a little bit. Here's the point, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Paul interprets the classic passage in Genesis 2, 24. That is that a, the purpose of marriage is that man would leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Um, and, and Paul says that uh, what this is about uh, this, he cites the very text, and he says this is a mystery. It's profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. A mystery. Now remember, uh, in the New Testament, mystery is not something unknown and uh, nobody's found out yet, as if uh, you're talking about a mystery story. But biblically, uh, it's something that wasn't known before, but now has been revealed. That's what the word mystery refers to. And so he's, it, Paul's talking about a revelation now that's been made that uh, a marital union is um, a sign pointing to Christ's uh, love for the church. Um, the um, So... Um, <clears throat> It, 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 the, in the sentence that follows, the male-female bond can only serve as an analogy to the Christ-Church union if the parties are significantly different. Now, um, significantly is a, uh, is a unhappily vague word there uh, in, in order to have a point be made that's powerful. Um, here we need to ask, um, is the God-man standard the one that is the example of a significant difference? Um, if that's true, then male-female differences hardly even qualifies. Uh, it, it's just here that 
this case strikes me as profoundly weak. Um, the, um, they want to argue the wonder of our union in Christ is that humanity and deity, alienated by sin, are now united in the person of Christ himself, the God-man, and in uh, the union brought between us and Christ through the Holy Spirit. But the point is here that I'm raising is that marriage and monogamous sexual relations are pre-fall in their order and orientation. Uh, And so that the union of alienated sinners um, is not really part of the essence of the precept. Um, So... uh, I think, nevertheless, they're making a tremendous point about marriage here. I just don't think it's rooted in the kind of argument they're offering. So I think they're quite sound when they say the rule marriage only between a man and a woman sounds narrow to modern ears, but the opposite is the case. Homosexuality does not honor the need for the rich diversity of perspective and engendered humanity in sexual relationships. Now, that point is true, and it's significant, but it doesn't depend at all upon this claim about union with Christ being at the root of it. Um, uh, They insist that male and female have excellences and glories and perspectives and powers that the other gender does not and cannot reproduce. And this... From creation, that's the point. God uh, made them in his image. He made them male and female. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply. That's where this is rooted in creation. And that creation order uh, continues to be prevailing. The third point, then, uh, is that uh, they want to say that um, union with Christ brings new life into the world. And that's why male-female marriage, uh, that's where it's rooted because they have the ability to create new new human life and to best nourish that life. Now, I think it's absolutely true that um, male-female marriage is rooted in the ability to create human life and nourish it. Um, but I don't think there's any integral relation at all uh, between union with Christ and the new life that that brings with respect to this subject. They rightly go and notice in Genesis 1 uh, the, the male-female character of the image of God and then the command to be fruitful and multiply and increase and fill the earth. And it's only men and women who can... Uh, perform as God has called them to. Um, the, uh, but the, the new life that union with Christ brings is not new life that's a being. It's a resurrection, as it were, of life that had died. So there's not even any proper analogy there. Um, In fact, what I would say is that, if anything, the new life of creation becomes um, a metaphor that's used to talk about redemption. So Christ says, you must be born again. And what does Nicodemus say? Do I have to get back in my mother's womb? You see, the idea there is rooted in the creation ordinance of male and female and being fruitful and multiply. And then that's applied as a metaphor to help us understand what the spiritual reality is that's in question. So all that to say, um, uh, the last two uh, seem to me to belong to an analysis of being made in the image of God and the creation order pre-fall. The first, I think, rightly is thought of, is rooted in that mystery that's been revealed, that the um, love of a husband and wife uh, covenanted together uh, is a picture of Christ's love for the church, and that is where it's rooted. But their recap on page 42, the, the summary, 
it, it doesn't have <laughs> what might be cluttering a little bit. Uh, it just puts it succinctly. Sex is for self-giving, which is only complete if there's a lifelong covenant. It's for bridging this, uh, I'm not sure what bridging even means there, the, the difference between uh, male and female. I would say, on the contrary, it's um, uh, for the um, union of the gifts of uh, male and female. And see then for the creation and nurture of life, and that's right. Um, and um, the point is to try and root this in uh, sex, uh, in, in our doctrine, and not simply have a rule about sexuality. Let me pause there for a minute and see if uh, there are questions. We've covered a lot of ground, and I, I, th- I think that there in the main, even where I don't quite agree with how they're grounding it, I think the things they've said are right. And, um, and I think all three of them are uh, quite, quite important to grasp. Questions, comments? And, and overall, I think that there's a genius to the pattern of what they're wanting to do. They're wanting to get Christians not to, just to say sex is, a, is between a man and a woman married in covenant relationship, but why those things are true about the world and uh, and out of our human nature and God's nature. Any questions, comments, reflections? Um, is that Aidan's? Nope, that was my cursor. <laughs> it turned into a hand over. Um All right, if you're content there, I'm going to press on. So now we're leaving those contemporary challenges, um, and we're moving on toward uh, a Christian apologetic, uh, a kind of framework for a Christian apologetic. Uh, And that's what they ask uh, near the bottom of page, or about the middle of page 42, Uh, How shall we proceed uh, with a sexual apologetic? Um, They've grounded the three purposes of sex that they identify in our theology. Now, how do we communicate that to the world? Um, And so what they want to say is that um, here's the more abstract point Um, for the Christian understanding, sex is super consensual. Remember, uh, earlier they argued that consent was nearly the only value left uh, from the Christian heritage in modern sexuality. Here, what the Christian wants to say is, yeah, you think sex should be consensual. Well, I, I agree with that, but in spades. Um, the uh, and they put it very nicely here. Christians believe sexual intimacy is not for those who merely give temporary consent for one sexual encounter, but for those who give permanent whole life consent to each other uh, through marriage. Um, and they go on to note powerfully from First uh, Corinthians seven one to four that uh, Christianity holds it that um, even in marriage. Sex must be mutually consensual, and the calling that husbands and wives have to give one another to each other. Um, and a very powerful passage that is quite shocking uh, for Paul's time, uh, given um, the sensibilities of the day. Um, he said uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, um, that each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. A, A remarkable saying, and powerful in the mutuality um, that grounds uh, the marriage relationship. The second point, 
um, is that um, that sexuality is is gender diverse, um, and the sexual relationship brings together the wisdom of God in making men as they're made and making women as they're made. And when you try and have marriage between persons of the same gender, you undermine entirely uh, God's wisdom in that point um, and do harm to the sexual relationship. And finally, the third point, uh, that um, the uh, biological reality that the sexual relationship between a man and a woman has the potential to produce new life uh, is um, part of the purpose and meaning of sex. And, of course, that can only come in a male-female relationship. And further, uh, that the nurture of children uh, depends upon uh, that male-female context of family life uh, for um, grasping the fullness of what it means to be created in the image of God. So let me pause there for a moment and see if uh, you have any questions about that recapitulation of those points more abstractly. All right. I'm up to page 43. And I'm, I'm amazed at the progress we've made. I, I didn't think I'd be this close. Um, but don't hesitate to interrupt. If, yes, Kate. So would that mean that according to the Christian view, it, would be, it wouldn't be right for two guys or two women to adopt a child, for instance? Uh, that they're not addressing. Um, but it, it would... Um, At the very least, what would follow is that you're depriving that child of the God-intended um, representation of uh, the image of God in having a man and a woman, a, a mother and father, that that, that can't possibly um, uh, create the framework that God intended for the household. Now, uh, there'd be all kinds of circumstances where, I, I mean, suppose um, a ship sunk, all the women were killed and there were only men and children left on an island somewhere. Uh, could they adapt to do the best they could in the circumstances? Yes. Or you'd certainly never say they. it would be evil for them to try and raise those children. But then the question would be, under what, you might, under some necessity, have to adapt to and live with that. But then would you ever choose it deliberately uh, in a given set of circumstances? And again, I mean, you can imagine wild circumstances. There's a plague and uh, the germs are particularly uh, <laughs> attuned to female hosts or something like that. And the women are killed off and the, uh, the men are left in the town. Well, they, they'd have to do But the, the question is whether you would uh, voluntarily order life outside of some crush of necessity and deliberately undermine the representation of the image of God in the family through the mother and the father. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Other thoughts? I'm just thinking about the fifth commandment. And so it, is the reason it says honor your father and mother because you have to have both to have the full image of God in front of the children? I, I think that's part of it. Um, the uh, that also, what you remember when we talked about the fifth commandment uh, in our study of Packer, that that's a, a shocking point to be made in that time period that the mother is included with the father to be honored in the household, and I do think that's rooted in the fact 
that whatever role relationships there are that differ, um, they together represent the image of God in the household. Other thoughts? All right. Well, uh, pressing on then. Now, uh, here on page 43, we begin their uh, uh, suggestion as as to what a strategy would be um, for an apologetic. And they have um, six points, seven points of uh, an alternate narrative to the one that they began with. And so it would be fruitful for you uh, if if you get a chance to reread pages 33 and 4. I think that's where it is, where the the five-point contemporary narratives of sexuality is. And we're saying that's what's in uh, the opponents of the Christian ethics point, uh, mindset. And this is what our mindset ought to be. And it ought to be part of the narrative that we try and communicate to the world. So do you get that? That's what they're trying to get at. It's not uh, rules versus rules. They want to have us tell our story that's in conflict with their story so that you can get the fullness and richness involved in uh, the conflict of ideas. So, first point, the brutality of sex in the old world. Um, Remember, in the ancient world, the standards for some were very permissive. For others, they were quite restrictive. But it was all a matter of power and the social order. Uh, and therefore, uh, sexuality was quite brutal um, the, uh, with respect to those who didn't have power. Um, the, uh, the, the wife uh, was not permitted to have sex with others, but the husbands could have sex with anyone except the wife of a person who was at their level socially. And it just made uh, what... God created to be something so beautiful into a brutal thing. And um, the second, then, is that Christianity comes into the world with a message of salvation by grace and uh, as opposed to any kind of earning of it because I'm from the right family or I have the, I, I have the right works or the right money, um, and, and so uh, it kind of leveled things socially. We were all dead in trespass and sin, no matter what our social standing. And it was all by God's grace that we would be brought to life in Christ. And um, so, as they put it at the end of that paragraph, we are all sinners in need of grace. Um, and uh, just, just as much as social outsiders and, and moral fa- failures. Um, they developed this idea further here in point three. Um, self-regard was not based on performance, family or society, but rather all were in Christ equal. Equally sinners in need of grace, equally loved, justified, adopted as God, God's beloved children. Um, the... Uh, And it's only at the end when they get to the new ethic. um, This was more of an elaboration on point two. But what they do get to at the end is that relationships within the Christian community were to be based on self-giving, sacrificial love rather than class and status. That's the new social ethic. Ideally, and I'm adding that, and that's important to add, this wasn't always achieved, and certainly never perfectly, but this was the ideal. 
Relationships within the Christian community were to be based on self-giving, sacrificial love, rather than on class and status. And out of this, then, a new vision for sexuality. Um, the, uh, uh, thus, uh, sex was based uh, not on power, but love. Um, not being captive to a culture, but captive to Christ. Um, and uh, rooted in the idea of an exclusive covenant relationship. Um, it meant sex that was shaped by two principles, self-giving and gender diversity. Um, and so uh, both principles are absolutely critical. And the latter, particularly in marriage it means that the full range of human excellencies and abilities is manifested in the life of the home as uh, a man and a woman are united in marriage. With this in view, then, we scrutinize the society that we live in. Point five on page 44. The failure of Western society. And, and here they very briefly um, set forth the, the progression, say, over the 20th century. In the 18th, 19th century, a Christian point of view generally prevailed, whether people were actually professing Christians or not. And our laws reflected that. But with the sexual revolution, the laws enforcing sexual standards, or excuse me, antecedent to the sexual revolution, the laws enforcing sexual standards were disconnected from the, the Christian scheme of grace and love. And once that disconnection took place, in, in other words, why do you uh, think marriage is between, uh, sex is with a man and woman in marriage exclusively. And the answer came to be, well, um, because that's what the rule is, rather than because that's the kind of love that God shows us uh, that he wanted for a marriage, the kind that we know with him, a covenant, uh, a, a, a bond of self-giving, as a, and so in its place, then, they, is what they call a kind of self-negativity. Um, and that uh, sex, in many cases, became shameful, uh, something that shouldn't be seen or heard or uh, talked about. Um, and that, that was certainly a cor corrupt circumstances. And, and furthermore... Um, this, uh, the rules became just rules and were disconnected from the gracious scheme in, uh, in which they were rooted, then the uh, sanctions against rule uh, the, uh, for rule break breaking were quite harsh and uh, often enforced uh, thoughtlessly, uh, especially for unmarried girls and uh, uh, um, same-sex attracted young people. Uh, were treated cruelly, um, and uh, and then finally to the place where prominent people in society, uh, professing outwardly the standards of the culture, violated them wantonly in private, and used uh, their power to both coerce sex in the old Roman way, and um, and keep themselves from having to give an account. Uh, um, so it was a that profound failure because of the disconnection between the gracious Christian calling and the beauty of the way of life that was given only to keep the way of life as something rule, uh, a rule to be enforced by power um, undermined the beauty of it. And it was in this context 
that the modern sexual revolution arises um, as a reaction against this hollow, uh, corrupt, um, uh, harsh regime. And, um, but the point is, the revolution is, is failing. Uh, it didn't bring in, some, in something better. It, it was a revolution against something that was bad, but the real revolution would have been a radical re- revolution to bring the culture back to its roots. Um, but um, what, what the outcome has been is to sever sex from a whole life commitment. Uh, the clock's being turned backward. It's self-fulfillment rather than self-giving. Transactional consumer good, there's that point brought in again. Two parties exchange favors only so long as they're getting their needs met. The result has been uh, that there are a great number of people who are having sex but feeling used. Uh, and consequently, abandoning sexual imagery. Uh, the loneliness in our culture, uh, commented on from all kinds of points of view, is profound. And uh, uh, the family, which was the nurturing point of not only the church, but the community in establishing character and order, uh, is itself falling apart. And this, they argue, has um, hit, uh, in fact, the poorest and most powerless communities. And so the modern sexual ethic is the hardest hardest on those with the least power and societal um, protections. And so their concluding point for this narrative the Christian people have a sexual counterculture. Um, Christians need to try and help bring sex back to the place of being rooted in the story of creation, fall, and redemption. That it's a part of God's plan that is essential and beautiful, life-giving, uh, joyous, self-giving in, in a committed relationship. Um, that uh, the modern view, where it's all about me getting my needs met to be authentic, all of them, whatever my desires are, they point out that every one of us knows we have contradictory desires without some standard to help us determine which of our desires are the ones that should be embraced and nurtured and which ones not, uh, we're hopelessly at sea. Um, Ancient people and modern people alike then, in place of some standard, let the culture be the standard. Whereas Christianity says, no, that's no standard at all. It ought to be God's word that gives us the moral grid to understand our own hearts and to learn to live in love and grace after the pattern of our Savior. And they conclude, um, we believe that this link between God's love and sexuality that is lived out through the biblical model of marriage is the best way for human beings to live and to thrive. Well, we've made it. (laughs) I didn't think it was possible, but maybe I've run roughshod over you all. If if I have, I apologize. Um, But we do have a few minutes now for conversation, if you'd like, or questions or objections or concerns. Austin? This relates to point five. Um, A few years ago, I wrote an article comparing... Clarence McCartney, a fundamentalist, with uh, Harry Emerson Fostick, a, a liberal. Yes. One of the interesting points is that they both, sort of the similarities, they both defended um, traditional morality and 
I just thought that was strange that Fosdick could sort of tear down Orthodox Christian beliefs and at the same time say you need to you know follow this traditional sexual ethic but that's sort of what the these um, early 20th century wasp liberals did they tried yes. to bring uh, anyway an interesting little anecdote I found um, Fosdick was really worried about overpopulation so he supported um, Planned Parenthood, which at the time, it was not abortion, it was contraception. Right. And he thought that, um, oh, this will be great, this will be used by married couples, and that will solve our overpopulation issue. And a, a woman wrote him a letter saying, um, I, I appreciate your concerns, but I'm concerned that this is going to promote um, sex outside of marriage and he was like oh of course not people would never behave in such immoral ways <laughs> but he was a he was very naive yeah and, you know, i just thought it was interesting that the liberals liked christian morality but they didn't like the orthodoxy that was necessary to support it yeah yeah that's a great uh, point and i can add to that austin that in fact, it, there's you can see liberalism of that period as a desire to retain post-millennial eschatology uh, without any um, eschaton, without any return of Christ, without a, any Christian doctrine, but to take that framework that the human race is going to progress and progress and, and progress uh, until in a kind of realized eschatology, uh, they're going to bring heaven on earth. And so the whole framework of that Puritan and, and um, early reformed eschatology was held on to, uh, but none of the doctrines that made it even have any plausible uh, sense beyond self-improvement. Right. And I guess in the when the sexual revolution came in like the 60s, they were taking down these types of figures. They were quote unquote the man. Yes. Yeah. Other thoughts, reflections. Yes. Uh I really appreciate what Austin had to say about his observation in college where they went right up to the point of like stepping up a line, you know, kind of like telling a child don't cross this line and then they go right up to that line and cross that line. And I was thinking about how all of this describes the responsibility that we have on a much broader scale more encompassing all of our life mm. and how our responsibility to a answer not just with rules like you were saying do this don't do that but looking at the bigger picture of what it really means right right absolutely well thanks for your input yes austin <laughs> other thoughts reflections on anything we've covered tonight All right, we have one more session together. Um, let, let me say a little bit about um, how I think we'll go. There's not, we're not going to spend a long time with the lengthy bibliography. Um, it's there for you to look at, but if you glance over it and if you have any questions about any of those books, I would be glad to have us talk about that, but I'm not going to go over that book by book. I'm just going to look at their summary conclusions, but be available to talk about the bibliography if you'd like to, uh, although I might point out a, a thing or two. So that's the way I expect us to uh, uh, make our way. We have pages 45 through 54. I won't be dealing with any of the appendices either. Uh, I think they're more just background materials. Um, but just their concluding narration and uh, a few things about the books. Um, 
Well, if nothing else, we'll call it quits for tonight. Thank you all again for coming and and for your uh, long-suffering through these last couple of sessions. They were a little more dense and intense, um, but I hope fruitful to you to think about further. And um, I, I do think their overall strategy is extraordinarily valuable, and we we should hold on to that regardless of what we might think of some of the details. Um, in the uh, program. All right, let me close with prayer. Father, we uh, do thank you that um, you have been gracious to us to help us understand your world and something of the time we live in in light of your word. We pray that we would um, live gratefully with that gift and seek to be useful with respect to it, to um, be examples to our contemporaries and to be able to engage in conversation. We pray that you would be merciful uh, to um, a people who have wandered profoundly from uh, great good into confusion and darkness we thank you especially that uh, the force of being created in your image remains and is always a seedbed ready uh, for a restoration. Um, and we pray that the seeds for that restoration would be planted even in the midst of the great controversies that there are today uh, that have provoked um, your folk to think more deeply and carefully about these questions. We thank you again for our committee. We pray that they would be blessed and satisfied in your gracious work, in their work. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.